Tigurinus itself. And then finally, in chapter six, uh, Calvin's works after the Consensus Tigurinus, culminating in the 1559 edition of the Institutes. In those previous five chapters, though, Calvin's reflections on baptism are, are really uh, his reflections on baptism in general. And when he talks about baptism in general, he usually has in mind uh, baptism as he encounters it in Scripture, in the New Testament, adult convert baptism. That's largely a reflection than an adult, what we call adult baptism, perhaps. But most, many, many, most people are interested in what Calvin has to say about infant baptism because that's such a controversial subject in the Christian world. So then I devoted the seventh chapter to just Calvin and the efficacy of infant baptism. And again, trace that chronologically, beginning with the 1536 Institutes, all the way through the 1559 Institutes, through these various stages of his life. And then the, the last chapter of the book, except for the conclusion, and really the last part of this narrative, relates to the impact that Calvin had on the Reformed tradition in the years after his death, on the codification particularly of Reformed theology from the mid-16th to the mid-17th century, as we find it in the major Reformed confessions of that 100-year period. And you can see the, uh, the various confessions that I looked at there. What impact did, that, did Calvin's view have on those documents? So to give you some idea of uh, the argument of the book and the conclusions I reached, I'm actually going to read now for the rest of my time uh, just some excerpts from the conclusion to the book. In chapter one, we introduced three schools of interpretation of Calvin's baptismal theology that we labeled instrumentalist, parallelist, and developmental. The central argument of this book has been that Calvin's view of the efficacy of baptism does not fit exclusively into any one of those categories. There are some ways in which all three of those labels apply and other ways in which they do not. The second category, what Brian Garish once called symbolic parallelism, has often been associated with Bullinger's doctrine of the sacraments. But scholars like Beckman and Cassidy were right that Calvin too sometimes employed parallelist language, sacramental language. Already in the 1536 Institutes, for example, he described baptism as follows, quote, these things I say God does for our soul within as truly and surely as we see our body outwardly cleansed, submerged, and surrounded with water. For this analogy or similitude is the surest rule of the sacraments, end quote. This statement was retained in all subsequent editions of the Institutes, and a version of it appeared in the Genevan Catechism as well. But Calvin was not just a parallelist. From the first of his works to the last, his baptismal theology also manifested features of what Garish called symbolic instrumentalism, according to which outer baptism is not just an analogy of the grace signified and sealed in the sacrament, but also the very instrument or means by which that grace is communicated. Two such features of Calvin's instrumentalism are especially noteworthy. First, throughout his writings, Calvin consistently operated with a twofold sense of baptismal instrumentality. Baptism as both a means of knowledge and assurance, number one, and a means of grace, number two. When it comes to one of the questions that precipitated this study, namely how baptism for Calvin could serve as an instrument of grace for a person who has already appropriated the benefits of salvation by faith prior to baptism, Calvin suggests in various places that even for someone who has already come to faith, baptism involves the offer of Christ himself in the sacrament and a strengthening of our union with Christ and his benefits. In these situations, baptism is simultaneously an instrument of assurance and of grace. Through the act of baptism, the believer enjoys an increase both of faith itself and of the gifts of pardon and new life that are appropriated by that faith. The second feature of Calvin's instrumentalism that we find across all his works is a balance between the instrumentality of baptism 
and the roles played by the Word, divine election, the Holy Spirit, and the baptizans' response of faith. Calvin consistently sought to avoid the twin dangers of, on the one hand, a sacramental realism that regarded baptism as an almost mechanical or automatic dispenser of salvation, and on the other hand, a symbolism that treated it as little more than a bare sign. <clears throat> His own position always lay somewhere between those extremes. The constant goal of his theology of the sacraments was that, quote, nothing be given to them which should not be given, and conversely, nothing taken away which belongs to them, end quote. However, there are aspects of Calvin's instrumental approach to baptism that underwent change and development over his lifetime, although not to the extent that some in the third category, the developmental school of interpretation, have alleged. First of all, the amount of attention that Calvin devoted to each of the two forms of baptismal instrumentality was not always proportionally the same. In both the 1536 Institutes and his writings from the five years that followed, his emphasis was primarily on what we might call the subjective dimension of baptismal efficacy, that is, baptism as an instrument of knowledge, testimony, and assurance. This is hardly surprising, considering his intent in the early editions of the Institutes and First Catechism to forge a Protestant alternative to the Roman Catholic doctrine of efficacy ex opera operato. There are some indications during this period that he understood baptism as an objective instrument of grace as well, but these are relatively few by comparison. However, in the following eight years, 1541 to 48, leading up to the Consensus Tigurinus, there was a gradual shift in Calvin's approach, reflecting perhaps the influence of his mentor Martin Butzer, his experiences in the religious colloquies with the Roman Catholics, and his first direct engagement with Anabaptists in Strasbourg. During this period, Calvin became more inclined to employ the terminology of means and instruments for both the sacraments in general and baptism in particular, and he did so now in a strictly positive sense, whereas before he sometimes used the term instrument negatively. There was also a shift in focus from the subjective to the objective dimension of baptism in the life of the believer, that is from the sacrament as an instrument of assurance to an instrument of grace. Finally, in the years after the consensus Tigurinus, particularly in his explanation and defense of the consensus against the attacks of the Lutheran Westfall, Calvin proceeded to chart a middle course between Zurich and Wittenberg with a fairly even balance between the subjective and objective aspects of baptism. He also related for, or reflected for the first time on the interconnection between the two forms of instrumentality. Another significant development in Calvin's instrumental approach to baptism had to do with how he understood a sacrament as a means of grace. His view of baptism as an instrument of knowledge and assurance remained fairly stable throughout his lifetime, but his understanding of the sacrament as an instrument of grace grew in depth and clarity as time went on, especially when it came to the relation between the outer sign and the grace that it signified. In the first two editions of the Institutes, a link between sign and signified is only implied, and it is not until the Romans Commentary of 1540 that Calvin explicitly ties the sign of baptism to the benefits that it signifies. There, for the first time, he employs the verbs join and connect to describe the relationship between the external sign and the internal, what he called substance or reality or truth of God's baptismal promises. The range and frequency of this language of attachment and efficacy would continue to increase in the period from 1541 to 48, and to an even greater extent in the years after the Consensus Tigurinus. Previous developmental interpretations of Calvin's doctrine of baptism, therefore, require some modification. These interpretations have been helpful in reminding us to read Calvin's works chronologically and contextually, and in suggesting the possible impact along the way of his interactions with Melanchthon, Bootser, Roman Catholics, Anabaptists, Bullinger, and Westphal. But to claim that his baptismal theology underwent major shifts from a Zwinglian non-instrumentalism in the 1536 Institutes to a Lutheran-like instrumentalism in the next decade, 
then back to a more Bullingarian position in the Consensus Tigurinus, and finally in a Lutheran direction again, during or after the 1550s, is more than the evidence will allow. There certainly was growth and development in Calvin's position, and even some strategic ambiguities and silences in the 1549 agreement with Zurich, but the overall tra trajectory of his baptismal theology was one of increasing clarity and refinement of basic themes already present in incipient form in the Institutes of 1536. In the years that followed, Calvin did not walk a perfectly straight line between the Roman Catholic and Zwinglian Anabaptist extremes he sought to avoid, but neither were the turns he made in one direction or the other nearly as sharp as what some in the past have suggested. With respect to infant baptism, Calvin's approaches to the efficacy of paedobaptism and adult convert baptism were not fundamentally inconsistent, as some have alleged, but followed many of the same patterns. Throughout his writings, he regarded infant baptism, too, as both an instrument of knowledge and assurance and an instrument of grace. And he once again qualified this instrumentality with an emphasis on the importance of the inscripturated word, the Holy Spirit, election, and faith. A major new element here was his concept of the latent or delayed efficacy of baptism, which distinguishes between the valid administration of baptism to an infant and the enjoyment at a later stage of life of the benefits signed, sealed, and sometimes even initially delivered in the sacrament of infant baptism. Calvin introduced this notion already in the 1536 Institutes and continued to expand and refine it over the course of his life, most strikingly in the 1550s with his use of a seed metaphor to describe the relation of infant baptism to regeneration, repentance, and faith. He talked about the seed of regeneration, seed of repentance, seed of faith. The efficacy of infant baptism, therefore, may follow a different timeline, according to Calvin, but his basic formulations of the doctrines of paedobaptism and adult convert baptism were enough alike that he seems to have considered them only age-differentiated versions of the same sacrament. Finally, past scholarship has largely passed over the epilogue to this theological narrative, namely the legacy of Calvin's doctrine of baptismal efficacy in the confessional codification of Reformed theology during the 16th and 17th centuries. Our own examination of eight of the major confessions and catechisms of this era has shown that many features of Calvin's baptismal instrumentalism reappear in six of these documents, all from French-speaking and English-speaking parts of Europe, and all with some historical and or literary connections to Calvin. These six being the, Gal the French or Gallican Confession of Faith, Scots Confession, Belgic Confession, 39 Articles, Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Westminster Larger Catechism. The other two, the Heidelberg Catechism from Palatine, Germany, and the Second Helvetic Confession from Northern Switzerland, explicitly teach only a doctrine of sacramental parallelism when it comes to baptism. This diversity in confessional approaches to baptism across the various regions of Western Europe provides another case in point that as significant a figure as Calvin was in shaping Reformed theology during the great era of confession writing, and now I conclude with a quote from Richard Muller, the Reformed tradition cannot be identified with the thought of a single theologian or with the definitions of a single major confessional document. Instead, it should be defined as a broad consensus arising out of diverse formulations. End quote, and I thank you. Thank you so much, Lyle. That was enormously helpful. Um, and we will have, I'm sure, a very good discussion to come in a moment. I would like now to turn over to Yuda Thianto for his presentation. Thank you, Karine. Good afternoon, good evening, or good morning to all friends and colleagues, wherever you are. 
The Dutch reached the shores of Bantam, now Banten, in the northwest corner of Java in 1596 under the leadership of a sea captain by the name of Cornelis de Houtman in their Seek of Spices. They were more than half a century behind their Iberian rifles, but despite the lateness in their arrival, the Dutch proved their triumph in monopolizing the trading of spices in the East Indian archipelago, mainly due to the success of the Dutch East India Company or the Verenigde Oost Indische Company or the VOC, who received full authority from the Dutch government, not only to do trading with local people, but also to mint its own money, which war and take plunder from the ship that they defeated. The rivalry between the Dutch and the Iberians was not just economically motivated, Politics, trades, and religious matters were all intertwined as these Europeans sought to gain control of spice trading in Southeast Asia. While the Dutch's main intention in the East Indies was to gain wealth, their presence there also introduced Reformed Protestantism in the land. The introduction of this branch of Christianity was mainly conducted by the ministers that came from the Netherlands. Contacts with the Dutch also brought some indigenous people into the Christian faith, even though main, many of the people decided to be Christians not merely for religious reasons. These Dutch ministers baptized adults who came to the Christian faith following the Calvinistic beliefs and practices of, in the fatherland. Uh, and later, they also baptized the children of these adults. The Jesuit missionaries who came to the archipelago around the middle of the 16th century or earlier than the 16th century, the, earlier than the middle of the 16th century, baptized the indigenous people almost en masse, often without giving them enough foundation of the knowledge of the Christian faith. Then, very often, these missionaries left the newly baptized in the rural areas without solid plan for the spiritual nurturing. Francis Xavier visited and stayed in the Moluccas for about 15 months between 1546 and 1547, and he was very disappointed to see how these Christians did not live as believers, both in their moral conducts and also uh, in their knowledge of what Christianity is all about. Xavier studied Malay, one of the lingua franca of the archipelago, wrote simple catechism for children and adults in Malay, translated the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ave Maria into Malay, and taught the people to memorize them with the hope that they would build fundamental knowledge of Christianity. When the Dutch came to the region, their spirit of rivalry served as a driving motor to build and grow Reformed Protestantism in the land. Equipped with the theological idea that Reformed Protestantism is the only true religion, the only one that, bring people to, that brings people to heaven, the Dutch ministers worked toward baptizing the indigenous people in the East Indies the Reformed way. This presentation looks at how the Dutch Calvinists conducted baptism uh, in the Reformed churches that they established in the East Indies at the beginning of the 17th century. By looking at the way the Church Order of Batavia described and regulated baptism in the Reformed church there, and how the church utilized the form of baptism in the church, this presentation intends to shed light on how the Reformed church in the East Indies looked at and practiced baptism to the indigenous people. This was done in the midst of the rivalry with the Iberian Roman Catholics and also in the context of their effort to colonize the region. Now, a little bit of a look at the Church Order of Batavia. Indigenous people of the East Indies asked to be baptized and joined the Dutch Reformed Church for a variety of different reasons, not always because of religious conviction. Some of these people wanted to be baptized for political reasons. They came as groups, not as individuals. They asked to be baptized, not primarily, primarily because they knew what Christianity is all about. When there was a war between two local kingdoms, one kingdom would ask for the help from the Dutch so that the, that kingdom would defeat their enemy. In the process, the king and therefore the entire citizen of the kingdom would become Protestants. Another group who asked to be baptized was former slaves who were originally from India and brought by the Portuguese to Java. They found their freedom when the Dutch defeated the Portuguese. Coming from a Hindu background, these liberated slaves chose to become Protestants because by converting to Protestantism, they received the rights from the Dutch government to be legally married, 
to earn good status in the society, and to live as respected people. Some other groups of indigenous people were just attracted to the reform Protestant uh, uh, to, to reform Protestantism because of the charisma of the Dutch ministers who introduced them to the reform faith. They didn't know much about the Christian faith. Justus Hurnius, one of the earliest Dutch ministers who came to Batavia in the late 1620s, reported that in order to ensure that these people gained some rudimentary knowledge of the Christian faith, they needed to be catechized. He required the people who asked to be baptized to memorize and recite the Ten Commandments, the, Lord prayers, uh, the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed in their native tongues. Utilizing the Malay translation of the Hyderabad Catechism, Hurnius also required the candidates for baptism to answer 14 questions from the Catechism before they were allowed to be baptized. What Hurnius did is an example of how the Dutch ministers wanted to ensure that these candidates at least had some basic knowledge of what they believed. In 1624, some Dutch ministers in Batavia, including Justus Hurnius and Sebastian Dankarts, some elders and deacons of the church in Batavia, with the approval of the governor general of the VOC by the name of the Carpentier, drafted the first church order of Batavia. The church order of Batavia became the foundation for the churches to conduct worship on Java and on the other islands of the East Indies. In many ways, the Church Order of Batavia was a replica of the Church Order of the Church uh, uh, of the Synod of Dort, written and implemented only five short years earlier. The Carpentier stated that the Church Order of Batavia was designed following the Church Order of the Synod of Dort in order to maintain strong ties with the Church in the Fatherland. Article 22 of the Church Order of Batavia of 1624 emphasizes that baptism is the sign and the seal of the covenant between God and his people. Ordinarily, the baptism is to be administered during church service where there is also the preaching of the word of God. This means that baptism should be done during Sunday worship service. However, seeing that there was not always regular services in the rural places in Java, due to the rarity of ordained ministers on the island, the church order provides a provision that extraordinary baptism can also be administered on other days of the week, as long as there's a short explanation from God's word that the minister would speak before administering the sacrament. Only ordained ministers were allowed to baptize. Not even the visitors of the sick had the authority to administer the sacrament. The church order clearly lays this out in order to avoid superstition, it says. Even though the church order does not specify what super superstition that it alludes to, we can infer that uh, this article shows disagreement with, Roman Catholic, with the Roman Catholic Church and its baptismal practice that allowed ordinary people, including midwives, to, to administer emergency baptism. The father of the baby must be present at baptism, according to Article 23 of the Church Order. This practice stands together with that of the Church of Geneva since the time of Calvin. Karen Spearling's work, for instance, um, uh, illustrates this well. The father should be the one presenting the baby for baptism. The name of the baptized child, the name of the father, and the date of baptism should be recorded in the church's register. The church order of the Synod of Dort, Article 57, mentions the option of grand godparents at baptism. The church order of Batavia shows some departure from it. Instead of explicitly using the term godparents, it only uses the term other witness at baptism. The Church Order of Dort states that the practice of having godparents is optional, and this optional nature of the practice should be more emphasized and not be changed too easily. The Church Order of Batavia took one step further by blurring the practice, perhaps with the intention of doing away with having godparents at baptism altogether. The effort reflected another measure to separate Reformed baptism from the Roman, Catholic, from the Roman Catholics. In reality, the presence of godparents in Reformed baptism in the East Indies was never a common practice. The idea of godparents at baptism has always been perceived as a Roman Catholic practice. Baptisms of both infants and adults should be administered following the form of the, uh, 
the form of the form that the Dutch Reformed Church had provided. The form should be made available in the language of the people, according to the church order. In 1623, Sebastian Dankarts published his Malay translation of the Heidelberg Catechism. Included in the publication of the Malay translation of the Catechism is the form for baptism. Considering that the Malay translation of the Catechism was published one year earlier than the Church Order of Batavia, we can say that the Church Order was written based on the practice that was already in place. Both the Church Order of Batavia and that of the Synod of God maintain that adults who are baptized are included in the covenant, uh, adults and babies who are baptized are included in the covenant, covenantal relationship with God. However, the Church also emphasize that covenant has two sides, promises and obligations. The people must keep their obligations to God. These obligations included knowing what they believed as well as living according to biblical morality and church discipline. In order to ensure that adults who were baptized demonstrate Christian practices and lived up uh, and lives of upright Christians, in the early years of its presence, the Dutch Reformed Church in the East Indies did not allow baptized adults to partake in the Lord's Supper until after they can demonstrate their Christian conducts. This practice was called the separation of the sacraments. The people were only allowed to partake in the Lord's Supper after they have passed through a trial period. From the standpoint of Reformed theology, the separation of the sacraments was unacceptable. But the issue here was not just theological. It had to do with the way the colonial rulers wanted to rule over the people. Many of the adults who wanted to be baptized were slaves or the freed slaves from India. They worked for the VOC. In order to maintain control, the Dutch people wanted this uh, these baptized people to conform to their rules and to their way of life, to live obediently and honestly following the Ten Commandments and demonstrate upstanding character. Two of the most often repeated commandments are, honor your father and your mother, and you shall not commit adultery. As Calvinists, the Dutch interpreted the Fifth Commandment to include leaders, preachers, and teachers as, quote-unquote, your father and your mother. Did this also include the Dutch masters and the slave owners? Sexual immorality was another issue that the Dutch saw um, among the slaves. The separation of the sacraments was therefore deemed necessary to ensure that these baptized adults confirmed their way of life according to, that of, uh, to what the Dutch wanted. The separation of the sacraments in Batavia and elsewhere was a big issue in the Netherlands. The ministers and theologians uh, in the Netherlands debated over the issue and said that the practice should be forbidden. Finally, in 1648, the VOC government canceled that practice. The decision to cancel the separation of sacraments was also followed by more integrated plan to catechize both adults who wanted to be baptized and children who were baptized as infants. This was anticipated by the revision of the Batavia Church Order in 1643. When, um, uh, when it was revised, the Church Order had an explicit statement about the need to teach the baptized children of the native people catechism was added. And for the, the adult slaves that were baptized, the church also provided catechism teachers to come to the houses of the masters so that these slaves received enough knowledge of the central teaching of Christianity, as well as some guidance of how to live as Christians. The form of baptism printed in the, uh, uh, translated into Malay and printed together with the translation of the Heidelberg Catechism, starts with a short theological teaching that brings the people to Adam and Eve and how God created them with true righteousness and holiness. The fall of Adam and Eve into sin caused all humans to be sinful and in need of redemption in Christ. This short biblical history of creation and the fall of Adam served as a good biblical foundation for the people in these Indies. As they still did not have a complete Bible in their native tongue, they needed a short teaching of why people needed redemption in Christ and to be baptized. The form of baptism then connects grace and baptism to show that grace is fully from God and baptism is the sign 
of the promise of this grace from God to human beings. The water of baptism, the form says, washes away sins just as much as ordinary water washes away our filth. The blood of Christ has washed away our sins. The sacrament was the sign of the covenant through which we are united with God in Christ. The Calvinistic core teaching is clearly evident in this uh, statement about baptism printed uh, uh, together with the form of baptism. Regarding infant baptism, the form explains that even though infants still do not have knowledge about their own sin and their need for salvation, the sign of baptism shows that it is God who does everything for their salvation. The form also calls the parents of the child to teach their children the teaching of the Reformed Church when they are older. The short theological teaching is followed by the interrogation of the parents of the child regarding their belief that all people have sinned and therefore in need of salvation in Christ. The father is the one answering the question with a yes. The next question addressed to the father of the baby deals with the affirmation that the Protestant religion is the only true religion that can bring people to heaven and a promise that the parents will teach the child the truth of the Protestant teaching. This part of the interrogation of baptism is noteworthy because it shows that in the East Indies, the competition with the Roman Catholic Church was very strong. The insertion of this promise in the baptismal form signaled that the parents of the baby uh, must only be loyal to the Reformed Church because it is the only true church. The Roman Catholic Church, even though it may have similar baptismal ritual, it is not the same. It's not even the true religion. After the, the father answers the question with a yes, the baby is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The baptism is then followed by a short prayer of thanksgiving to God uh, and also asking God to strengthen the faith of the child and also that the Holy Spirit would lead the child to grow in faith and to be obedient to the teaching of God's word and to stay in the Protestant religion. Even this prayer is used to send a message of the truthfulness of, the, uh, of Reformed Protestantism over against the Roman, uh, Roman Catholic uh, counterpart. The prayer is then concluded or ended with the Lord's Prayer. In conclusion, Reformed baptism in the early 17th century showed the complexities of the relationships between the theological teaching, church practice, politics, sociocultural condition of the people, and, the li and life as a whole. While baptism is a religious ritual, it did not just stand in the re religious realm of the issue. Clad in the early time of the colonialization of the East Indies in the 17th century, the teaching and practice of baptism in the Reformed Church there saw issues that were, that were unique to the colonialization context. As the ministers who served the church in the East Indies worked for the VOC, they had to obey what the company wanted them to do. Matters that the VOC wanted to happen trumped over theology and church practices. The separation of the sacraments became one of the cases that reflected the situation. Competitions with the Iberians also translated into theological matters when the Dutch taught about baptism to the native people of the East Indies. Rivalry and monopolizing spice trading was coupled with the theological controversies regarding true and false religions. The way the Dutch Reformed Church baptized babies and adults in the East Indies reflected the fight and the competition that was rooted in the Reformation era in Europe. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yuda. So now what we'll do is, um, Lyle, you can go ahead and turn your sound on as well. So I think we can have the three of us with our sound on so we can all talk as we need to. So um, thank you to both of you so much. Um, you know, it's really wonderful to have these two presentations side by side because we have on the one hand, a theological understanding of what the sacrament of baptism was, that how Calvin was, was essentially orienting his theology of baptism. And then from Yuda, a very specific example of how baptism functioned in practice in a reformed community. So these two presentations together worked very, very nicely. So thank you to both of you. Um, so first of all, just one clarification. Um, Lyle, your, your book is coming out with Oxford University Press, am I right? That's correct. Yes, Oxford University Press. So make sure, I, I think I misspoke earlier. So let's make sure we're clear on this. Oxford University Oxford Press, Cambridge. in case you're looking for the catalog. Do you know how soon it's gonna come out, Lyle? Uh, I think we're looking at March 2021. Excellent. So it's coming up. You can you can think of it as a 
sort of a spring gift that you can add to your libraries as it were, as it comes. All right. So Lyle, thank you so much for your presentation and for clarifying this, this view of Calvin's um, theology of baptism. I guess one question I'm sort of left with, and this is maybe harder to pinpoint, is when you looked at the various sources that you did for Calvin's theology of baptism, um, how much did you find in his sermons? And was there any particular view that he was trying to get across to a congregations when it came to baptism or the theology of baptism? I didn't find baptism treated uh, very much in his sermons, at least those sermons that we have accessible to us. Mm -hmm. There were a few places where I think I looked at his sermons, but um, I don't recall uh, specifically how he was shaping the doctrine in those contexts. I guess the closest I got to um, non-theological types of literature would be if in chapter four, where I look at works that he produced after he got back from Strasbourg. Um, I'm going to put that up here a minute Hang on, again. I've got to probably let you share again. because I Oh, have, I see. Okay. Let me just fix that a second. I'll be right there. Uh, now we can do that. All right, go ahead and try sharing now. Yeah, if you go to uh, chapter four, where you look at the works from his second ministry period up to the Consensus Tigurinus, shortly after he got back, he published this form of prayers, mm -hmm. uh, which was a, a worship document. And there he actually goes through uh, a theology and then a liturgy uh, for baptism mm -hmm. in, uh, in the Church of Geneva. Um, and, but I mean, if your original question is, is he addressing particular kinds of concerns or so with his sermons or in a liturgical setting? Uh, I didn't pick up on that uh, really at all. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things to do now is look not only at all the theological materials that we have from Calvin, but now look at the liturgical materials yep. that we have, including maybe a, digger, a, a deeper dig into his sermons and just see how is this actually getting translated more into the real practice of uh, ecclesiastical worship. Yes. I mean, clearly they would have gotten something through the catechisms, right? Because the catechism is a, is a point of contact for ordinary Genevans and their pastors, right? That's how the children are trained. So that would be one point of contact. The sermons would be another. And then I think if I were thinking about a bigger project, um, it would be also to look at his correspondence. Yeah. Where yeah. he has things to say about particular cases and situations of baptism, where it's maybe not, you know, intending to line up all the theology at one go, but there's a very clear point of contact between an ordinary person's questions and Calvin's reflections. Right, right. No, I, I, I think that's true. I, this is really probably mostly focused on his major theological statements, mm -hmm. as we find them in his institutes and in his commentaries. And there we get closer to his actual exposition of the biblical text, his commentaries, his polemical treatises, his catechisms, and so forth. Absolutely. So when, when other scholars have wanted to see more of a turn in Calvin's theology of baptism, do you have a sense why they want to see more of a turn in his theology of baptism? Like what lies behind that? Well, part of it is the, is the way that he's using the word instrument in the 1536 Institutes. And he uses it there both negatively and positively, and maybe uses it more strongly negatively at that point. He says, the, the sacrament of baptism is not an instrument. Mm -hmm. <laughs> elsewhere, he actually uses that term instrument positively, even elsewhere in the, in the 36 Institutes. But people really focus on that negative statement that he makes. It's so strong. These are not instruments of salvation. What he wants to say, it's not a cause of salvation. Mm -hmm. The baptism itself does not save. It's just a tool in the hands of God. So they, they, they have interpreted Calvin then as really to be a very much a non-instrumentalist at this point. He doesn't want to think of baptism in instrumental terms. Mm -hmm. Whereas once he gets into the next phase of his life, he is all of a sudden seems to be much more positively inclined towards use of the term. Um, but I, it, it actually ends up being, in my judgment, kind of a selective reading of sources, because I think there are, there are also positive uses of instrument in, in his earlier works. And um, he doesn't totally free himself of this negative idea of instrumentalism uh, once he gets into the next phase of his life. Um, 
part of this too is based on um, the fact that the most careful treatment of development in Calvin sacramental theology has been done with respect to the Lord's Supper. Yes. Um, Tom Davis, Thomas Davis in the 1990s uh, wrote a, a whole monograph on a developmental view of Calvin's uh, sacramental theology, but focusing on his Eucharistic theology and not baptism there. And he's one who has argued very strongly for sharp turns in his Eucharistic theology. And I think that may have has maybe has influenced people's view or of Calvin's sacramental theology more generally. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I just I just uh, filtered out all those references to the Eucharist, and I concentrated solely on his statements about sacraments in general, which of course include baptism as well as Eucharist, and his statements on baptism. And I'm not getting the same picture there. No. And so, in effect, um, I guess another future task for somebody is to, is to say, and I say this really at the end of the conclusion too, our work now maybe is to go back and take another look at his, his doctrine of the Eucharist again. Yeah. See, are, they, are these two really that much out of sync with each other? Or has there been something of an exaggeration of the turns he was taking when it comes to the analysis of his Eucharistic theology? There are some theologians who have pushed back a bit on Davis and Wim Janssen and so on yes. in the Netherlands in their arguments for this, these rather sharp turns and say, wait a minute, we're not seeing it quite as sharply as what you have claimed. And so I think my work maybe is just another plea for that, that investigation. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Yuda, a couple of questions for you. Um, first of all, I mean, I found this, this business of the separation of sacraments absolutely fascinating. Um, I can see why the uh, Dutch clergy in the Netherlands thought this was a terrible idea. I can also see why the leaders in Java thought it was a good idea, right? Yes. How, much is, how much is this practice connected to um, the earlier existence of mass baptisms? In other words, group baptisms. Is it part of that anxiety that people had got baptized and not really knew why they were getting baptized? Well, yeah. Uh, uh when uh, you're uh, asking about the the, uh, the Catholic baptism, correct? Right. So so when they were baptized, if they were baptized as Catholics, it could mm -hmm. be you know something that happened for a group all at one time. Yeah. But for Reformed baptisms, it sounded like there was also the possibility of people getting baptized at a time of war or something like that, right? Yes. Yes, uh, and and that's why. Um, see. The, the main issue um, uh, is that these people did not know, the, the newly baptized did not know what being Christians uh, actually mean, right? The, the, uh, uh, the native people who, whose king was, was baptized and they all became Christian, they were still uh, uh, living as, as, as non-believers, um, uh, their moral conducts and so on and so forth. So, yeah, uh, but then again, uh, the Dutch still baptized them. I have, a, uh, you know, the way I read um, all, all the, the documents is that the competition with the uh, with uh, with the Roman Catholics was so big. They mm -hmm. wanted numbers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They wanted numbers, so they still baptized all these people and take care of the issues later. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, uh, yeah, um, uh, statistics are important. Uh, these ministers wrote reports uh, back to the Netherlands every year, and they wanted to look good, mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, both in terms of ecclesiastical uh, existence and presence, and also in terms of um, uh, political power and everything else, that they triumphed over the Iberians. Yes. That's the way I read that. That's why, even though they were against the theology of, of uh, Roman Catholicism, that in practice, it's somewhat similar. Yeah. Oh, yes. And I think partly what this flags is the challenges of catechizing, isn't it? That people yes. would get baptized before catechesis because catechesis had not caught up. Yes. Yeah. Material was an issue. Who could catechize uh, uh, was another problem. That's why Hurnius uh, emphasized. But of course, Hurnius was just one minister that I, 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 that I could find, right? Uh, an example that he wanted catechism first before baptism. Mm -hmm. But how many church? Well, you know, well, when you count uh, just the islands in Indonesia alone, there are seventeen thousand plus islands. Yep. Java is only one of. Yep. So. So you can see the challenges that were that were coming to bear. Yeah. Um, 
And I found the whole issue with um, slaves and former slaves requesting baptism absolutely fascinating. It's something I hope you'll be able to do more work on because it's a, it's a very important part of the story, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, and also well, uh, what's exciting about this is that this research brings me to the connection with Sri Lanka and India because uh, these former slaves came from that part um, uh, of Asia. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right, so we have a number of questions that are turning up in the chat. So I'm just gonna work my way through them and uh, read them out as relevant to the people who are having questions that they need to ask. So uh, we have from Intei Kim to Dr. Birma, two questions. Is the three interpretations of baptism, uh, did they appear in the understanding of the Lord's Supper as well? And then what insight did you get on from your research for pastors and congregations? I think for pastors and congregations today is probably the question. Lyle, would you like to try and tackle either of those? Yeah, the, interesting. The first one, uh, the three interpretations of baptism, do they appear in the Lord's Supper as well? Now, these are, these are actually three categories of interpretation yeah. that I actually came up with. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're my, my way of reading the secondary literature there. I think they fall into these three basic categories. And I have not done the careful reading of all the secondary literature on Calvin and the Lord's Supper that I did with uh, Calvin and baptism. So I don't really know how the secondary literature breaks out when it comes to uh, those particular categories, whether they the same applies. I suspect that they might, um, but I, I can't really say for sure. Mm -hmm. um, insights from your research for pastors and congregations. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think maybe... Um, well, for one thing, the one thing I guess that it, it has impressed upon me is that maybe we have a greater diversity of sacramental theology within our tradition than what we ourselves have realized. I mean, those of us that belong, not all of us here in this gathering do, but those of us that belong to Reformed denominations that subscribe to, say, the three forms of unity, the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, Canons of Dort, we actually have probably a different approach to baptism in the Heidelberg Catechism than we do in the Belgic Confession. Belgic Confession is much more Calvinian and much more instrumentalist in the way it approaches baptism than the Heidelberg is. The Heidelberg doesn't rule out such an interpretation, but it doesn't go anywhere beyond, at all beyond, a parallelist interpretation. So it maybe gives us some, some flexibility or some freedom to live within the same tradition with maybe more than one way of approaching the sacraments because even our own confessional documents are not exactly on the same page in that in that regard i mean one other thing when it comes to pastors and congregations is maybe um, we have in our tradition a much higher view of the sacraments than maybe what we're uh what we've been taught or what we've picked up um, over the decades, I think, at least in an American setting, a North American setting, uh, reformed denominations in a North American setting breathe, I think, largely a larger North American evangelical theological air. And I think that influences the way we understand some of our own traditions. In the larger North American evangelical tradition, I think there tends to be a lower ecclesiology and a lower sacramentology, maybe more generally. Mm -hmm. than uh, what came from the Reformation through these documents. So um, for me, I guess it's a way, it, it, it's a wake-up call again that we do have within the Reformed tradition a rather high view of the sacraments that we often don't even realize yep. uh, when it comes to our own um, confessional tradition there. Absolutely. Thank you. There's a, a long question coming up now from M.D. Visk. Oh, a general question. What role do you think Calvin's theology of the sacrament plays on his theology of the work of Christ? Okay, that's just a general question. Then the specific question, Calvin's doctrine of satisfaction for sin grounds his understanding of justification. Because Christ made vicarious satisfaction, we are declared just or right before God, and we receive that benefit sacramentally. And then there's a quotation from the Scottish confession, John Knox's confession, and thus we utterly damn the vanity of those that affirm sacraments to be nothing else but naked and bare signs. No, we assuredly believe that by baptism we are engrafted in Christ Jesus to be made partakers of his justice by which our sins are covered and remitted. Okay. Do you think Calvin's doctrine of satisfaction and therefore his doctrine of justification ultimately requires a sacramental position? 
Any thoughts, Lyle? That's that's quite an earful there. Okay. Yeah, I think I think think about that one for a little bit because it's a little no, bit. No, I, no? I, I'm well, unless you want to go on to someone else. To no, another no. Question. I'm willing to try to tackle yep. a little bit. Yep. I mean, that's an interesting question. I'm. I think um, what you find in Calv. I mean, th this actually was kind of one of the questions that I had as I worked my way through Calvin. I alluded to it briefly in the conclusion, and that is what's happening sacramentally to someone like Cornelius, for example, who becomes a believer before he's baptized? Isn't he justified by grace through faith at the moment that he exercises that faith, at the moment that he believes? Doesn't he receive the benefits of justification and the work of Christ at the time of his belief? If so, then what's going on in baptism? Um, how, do you, how do you reconcile, then, uh, Calvin's view of, of something... Uh, a baptism as an instrument of regeneration and forgiveness and so on, when a person comes to the baptismal font already a believer. So, I mean, maybe that's kind of what's, what the, the questioner is getting at here. And Calvin will say, first and foremost, we are justified by grace through faith. Let's leave baptism out of the picture entirely. You receive those benefits of the work of Christ when you believe. If you're a believer, you are justified forget the sacraments. But what happens in the sacrament, and then when we go to the sacrament, is that Christ is really and truly present there and offered to us along with his benefits. And so that if we approach that sacrament in faith, and we're thinking of the adult now, then we are brought into closer union with Christ and those benefits. So our grip or our hold on those benefits is deeper. And you can actually even say maybe there's an increase in the sense of forgiveness and uh, and new life in Jesus Christ because of the tighter hold that we have on Christ in that moment. Mm -hmm. So um, I think in, in a sense, I mean, his doctrine of justification is really quite separate from sacraments. We're not sacramentally justified, only sacramentally justified. We're justified by grace through faith. But what happens at the sacrament is that that justification is again brought to us in the very presence of Christ and is thus attached to the, the elements and the sacramental action in such a way that our, our, uh, our grip on it is, becomes even tighter. I'm not sure if that's really getting at the I question, think, but I, I, I think so. That, that responds to what Knox is saying there too. Mm -hmm. Yes, by baptism, we are engrafted in Christ. We may partakers of his justice by which our sins are covered and remitted. If Knox is talking about the first time or I was talking, say, about the baptism of, a, of an infant, where that happens for the first time at that moment, or the baptism of a believer, where it happens for the first time, if he believes at the moment of baptism, or if it's talking about something later, uh, I'm not really sure. But I think you can, I mean, that statement that Knox is making there is fully consistent with Calvin, what Calvin is saying, and may even reflect something of Calvin's own thinking in it. You can thank see you. the argument for that connection to the Scott's Confession in, the, in that last chapter. No, thank you. That's very helpful, Lyle. I think the next question is for Yuda uh, from Graham Murdoch. Uh, with thanks, could I ask Professor Tianto about any evidence of awareness among clergy of how unpopular some Reformed ideas about baptism were, as also in Europe, by comparison with Catholic and Lutheran rivals? No exorcism, no emergency baptism, no domestic baptisms, and so on. Yuda, what do you think? Yes, thank you, Graham. Uh, yeah, and my evidence actually came not from uh, the, the, the baptismal records it's, uh, themselves, but from their sermons. The, the, the sermons uh, that the, the ministers um, um, preached and then circulated talked a lot about, especially exorcism, uh, not so much about emergency baptism or domestic baptism, but exorcism. Because if you think about this whole archipelago, um, demon worships and all those uh, weird um, uh, superstitions uh, ran rampant there. But then in baptism, the, the minister saw the most need um, of exorcism, but they did not do that. And as I um, already uh, showed you, uh, um, this, the form of baptism is so plain. It's more of the theological teaching and making sure that they are Protestant and not, not Catholic, um, and that's it. 
So in their sermons, they keep talking about the danger of um, uh, of, of of satanic worship, uh, especially in the in the sermons uh, on the Ten Commandments. So you can see here the the layers of um, of interconnections. Uh, the sermons are uh, you shall have no other gods before me, for instance, right? And all the the dangers of of uh, spiritism uh, and and other practices. And uh, the, uh, you know uh, sometimes they they, in, they remind the, the the ministers reminded the people you have been baptized so that's that's how my uh, uh, my connection um, is is established right uh, you have been baptized you should follow only the true God yeah. so yeah there is some kind of uh, lament but not explicitly mentioned at baptism this actually thank you Yura uh, another question for Lyle from Don Westblade. Uh, the Greek word baptisein means to immerse. Does Calvin wrestle in any way with the mode of baptism? Is his view or are his arguments later influenced by contact with Anabaptists? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, Calvin doesn't wrestle significantly with uh, the mode of baptism. I don't think that's ever been a significant issue in the, in the Reformed tradition. Uh, been open to a variety of modes throughout our history. In fact, Calvin will sometimes even use language of immersion or or being submerged in the water or something like that. Um, because I think he's reflecting first and foremost when he talks about baptism on New Testament baptism, on the way people were baptized in, in uh, New Testament times or in the ancient church. So he doesn't have any problem with using that kind of language when reflecting on adult believer baptism and so on. Um, and so for him, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a major issue. Um, is his view or his arguments later influenced by contact with Anabaptists? Again, because it's not such a major issue, I don't think that's his primary bone of contention that he has with the Anabaptists. It's not the actual mode. It's, it's many other things there. Mm -hmm. No, I think you're right. And I mean, it's, it's in the mode of how to celebrate, because I just some work on the practice of yeah. baptism in the Reformation. And actually, the biggest change you might see is where the Catholic Church would have the baptismal font at the door of the church, and the baptism would really take place at that end by the door. The Reformed both moved the water and didn't really like the font so much. That seemed too Catholic. And they would go instead for a basin um, sort of clipped to the side of the pulpit. It's really quite interesting. If you have seen engravings of Reformed baptisms, the, the, the receptacle for the water is no longer the big font. It's the, the basin clipped to the side of the pulpit. So the, and oh, that's really a reaction against Catholic practices, not so much to do with Anabaptism. For the cover of my book, they have one of these big old medieval fonts on the front. So <laughs> I should have consulted with you first before I approved the cover. <laughs> I think you're fine. It'll get the idea across to the readers. That's the important part. So we have a question from Scott for Lyle. Thanks, Lyle, for a great presentation and book project. Here's a question. Modern Reformed liturgies sometimes liken infant baptism to engagement to be married to Christ. Do you find the analogy of engagement in any of your 16th century sources? First of all, may I just ask Scott, can he say a little more about that? Okay, Scott, go ahead and unmute yourself and talk to us. What exactly do they mean by that? Let's see if he's still here. He yeah. might have had to go. I'm, al I'm alive and well. There he is. <laughs> Thanks again, Lyle. Uh, I've I've been uh, I've attended several Reformed uh, baptisms uh, in the Christian Reformed Church and also the Reformed Church in America, where the liturgy that was recited at the time of the baptism likened baptism to the child being engaged to be married. Uh, so placing them, as it were, in a a formal um, relationship with Christ that would then be uh, finally recognized fulfilled, realized with marriage, namely with uh, trusting in Christ later, later in that child's life. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the short answer to your question, do you find any of that analogy in any of the 16th century sources is no, I don't remember having come across anything like that. And part of that may be because there's a different kind of theology even operating here. I mean, when I hear this term, engagement or in the way you just described it it sounds as if it's something that the parents are initiating 
and they're kind of bringing the child to Christ for an engagement or something like that. Um, so that if I'm hearing you right or reading you right, it's something that, that really is moving from us toward God. Whereas I think Calvin and the Reformed tradition more broadly uh, since him is really emphasizing much more movement from God to us or what God is saying to us or what God is doing to us in that moment. And so, um, so I haven't found that language. I think if, if I understand it right, I think it would be somewhat, the whole idea would be a little bit foreign to Calvin. Yeah, it sounds to me much more like language that a Reformed community might develop in reaction to some parents' concerns over infant baptisms and a preference for infant dedications. Where you could see how that language would kind of emerge to make the case for infant baptism in a way that still put emphasis on the child coming to Christ later in life. I could see it out of that line. But yeah, I've never read anything like that in, in, the, in the 16th or 17th century source. Okay. And then Randy Blackader has a question for Yuda. Uh, did you notice any wrestling with moral issues of colonialism or slavery among the Dutch in their handling of baptism? Uh, thank you, Randy. Um, I assume that you were thinking about the ministers or um, um, my, 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 my sources are the reports of the ministers, the, the church notes and, and so on and so forth, right? So far, I have not seen uh, any uh, complaint or wrestling, particularly because the ministers and all the church workers, including the visitors of the sick, the, uh, the school teachers, and all those people were all paid by the VOC. Mm -hmm. And uh, they just have to work with the master, right? And they are the voices of the, uh, of the VOC. They, they couldn't do anything. Uh, their salaries, uh, decided by by the VOC. Even you see that even the um, the publication or the writing of of the the first uh, church order of Batavia, the governor general has to put his name uh, in the um, the final say. So I don't mainly because the way I see it is that uh, you work for the company. So or and they also understand they work for the company. Yeah, I would think the only place where I would see anything like that coming up was actually at the Synod of Dort, where they debated, what do you do about, can you baptize the child of a slave in your household? If the slave is not a Christian, can you baptize the child of the slave as a Christian, as the slave owner? Yes. Um, uh, yes. Um, but the, uh, that question in the Synod of Dort is uh, uh, um, uh, just a, a segment of a larger question mm -hmm. of uh, baptized. Who are the slaves um, is uh, the, um, uh, question number one. Who are the fathers uh, will be the more important question because um, um, most of the time, the fathers of the babies are Dutch men. Mm -hmm. And if you are reformed, right, uh, uh, the names of the fathers must be written in the books of the church, which will be sent back to, the, to Amsterdam for the whole country to read, uh, technically. And if these men have wives in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. yeah, so um, that's, that's a larger issue. I, I didn't include that conversation here, or that, that piece of um, uh, uh, study here because I think it would be too large. Yeah, exactly, which is totally fair. And then a quick question from Kyle, uh, related to Randy's question, Yuda, do any of the sources ever use theology or scripture to justify colonization or slavery? Um, again, so far I have not uh, found uh, any evidence of that because the sermons that are mostly uh, 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 preached are sermons on the Ten Commandments, the uh, uh, exposition on the uh, Lord's Prayer, and exposition on, on the Apostles' Creed. Those are the ones being written, pre uh, preached, uh, circulated, and recirculated. So uh, the, uh, uh, then again, um, uh, they didn't have the New Testament yet, right? They, they, uh, uh, the Bible came piecemeal. The, the, the entire Bible was only translated into Malay 100 years after the first, um, after the, uh, the first publication of the catechism. So you can see here, uh, it's not as extensive as we think in, in Europe or uh, um, uh, elsewhere in the world. So no, I don't. 
Okay. So I'll do one last question, which is from Nathan Chung um, for Dr. Birma. Considering Calvin's context, where do you think Calvin's emphasis is between subjective and the objective aspect of baptism? And then what do you think is Calvin's consideration of the role of the Holy Spirit in baptism? Yeah, so just to remind ourselves, subjective aspect of baptism is baptism more as an instrument of, of knowledge and assurance, objective and an instrument of grace. And this is one area where there really is change and development along the way in Calvin's lifetime. In the early part of his career, he's emphasizing baptism much more in a subjective sense as, a, as an instrument or means of assurance and knowledge, although there is some treatment, some attention there to baptism as an instrument of grace. So if, you know, if these are the, the, the teeter-totter is sort of tipped in one direction towards subjective there. What happens in the next phase of his life, once he gets back to Geneva, 41 through 48, up to the, up to the consensus Tigurinus, is that thing shifts where you have much greater emphasis on baptism as an instrument of grace. And then after the consensus Tigurinus, it's sort of this balances out or evens out or settles out. So you have a pretty, a pretty even uh, balance, I think, between the two by the time you get to the late 1550s in the way that he treats baptism. Uh, when it comes to the role of the Holy Spirit, that's something that doesn't change in Calvin's baptismal theology at all. The Holy Spirit is a crucial part of this picture right from the get-go. None of this happens without the Holy Spirit present and the Holy Spirit active. All these things that we've talked about that take place at baptism and so on are all dependent on the work and the role of the Holy Spirit in the, in the act of baptism. And that is absolutely consistent all the way from the 36 Institutes all the way through all his theological writings to the end of his life. So a very important role and a very consistent role to the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you, Lyle. Thank you. Please join me. You can clap like this to show how you're appreciating. Yes, everyone's cheering, right? This is great. Thank you so much to both of you for this. This is wonderful. Um, we have a nice couple of notes here. Um, I think I've got one from Jim West. A thank you to Karine for organizing it, to Lyle and Yuta for presenting. This has been wonderful, they say. Um, and then there's some more notes at the bottom. And thank you to all of you for doing this. Um, what we'll do, this has been recorded. So we will have a recording available on our YouTube channel and it'll be linked to Facebook so people will be able to watch it after if they couldn't come. Um, and then again, just another reminder for November 11th for our next event on church discipline. And uh, if we organize other things, we hope to organize other ones and we'll just keep you posted about that too. So once again, thank you, Yuda. Thank you, Lyle. Thank you everyone for being part of this. Bye-bye.